If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Ferrari. And I'm Andrea Dresch. We're two political reporters in D.C. who are going to do something radically different on our podcast. We're not going to obsess about Donald Trump. That's right. Here at McClatchy, we have eyes and ears on the ground in 30 newsrooms across the country, keeping the pulse on the voters who will decide this fall's midterm elections, as well as the presidential contest in two years. Today, we're also looking at the confirmation hearing of Brett Kavanaugh, President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court. Dr. Margaret Russell is a professor at Santa Clara Law. She'll take us through the tumultuous hearing and whether confirmation hearings are more than just bad political theater anymore. Then we've got Rob Haneke from the conservative Texas Public Policy Foundation. He's going to talk about a Texas-led Obamacare lawsuit that's giving Republicans in Washington heartburn. All right. You ready? Let's do it. So we wanted to have Dr. Margaret Russell back on the show. Uh, you might remember we had her on after Justice Kennedy stepped down before Donald Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh. And we wanted then to talk to her about the, the future of Roe v. Wade. Now we want to talk to her about the confirmation hearings that Brett Kavanaugh has gone through, which have been, I think, fair to say, pretty rancorous so far. Uh, we even have tape right now of, of some of the protests that marked the beginning of those hearings. This is a Senate committee with uh, lots of heavy hitters from both parties on here, lots of ambition. We've also got some audio of Senator Kamala Harris from California, another potentially ambitious Democrat on the committee. Have you discussed Mueller or his investigation with anyone at Kasowitz, Benson and Torres, the law firm founded by Mark Kasowitz, President Trump's personal lawyer? Be sure about your answer, sir. Well, is there a person you're talking about? I'm asking you a very direct question, yes or no. Republicans, of course, have accused some of their Democratic counterparts, maybe some Democratic counterparts with presidential ambitions, in fact, of grandstanding and being deceitful in their own right, which has really contributed, I think, overall to maybe the most rancorous Supreme Court confirmation hearing we've had since possibly Robert Bork. So we're going to ask an expert about her own read on all these hearings and whether there's any hope that it can get better in the future. I don't know. Maybe that's asking too much. For Congress, probably so. Dr. Russell, thank you so much for coming on the show. Glad to be here. We wanted to get your opinion on this as a, an expert on the law, how you see Supreme Court confirmation hearings these days, because this is certainly not new that there would be political theater. I'm sure that's actually always been the case with uh, Supreme Court uh, nominations, but it just feels like maybe we have reached a tipping point or at least reached a new stage where it seems like we're very heavy on the theater part and maybe it's bad political theater and we're very light on actually finding out anything new about these prospective justices. Is this a process worthwhile anymore? I guess my first question and response is what choice do we have? But I certainly understand what you mean and I understand why the public is very frustrated by these hearings. We need to look at the Kavanaugh hearings in a different light. And it's not just, you know, huffing and puffing. It's not just political theater. It is a real acceleration of process. And the lack of process and the lack of opportunity for the senators on the Democratic side, but really all the senators, to receive all the documents and to have them evaluated by the National Archives as being truly confidential or not has posed a very serious problem. And I do think that that's why you're seeing some of the, you know, what you would call bad political theater of, of outrage of Senator Booker or Senator Harris being very dramatic. It's, it's because this is different. 
I think that there, there is a very distinct difference in what's being withheld from the public, perhaps because there is so much public attention and scrutiny in an election year, in the midterm election year, on this nomination. It, uh, Carl Hulse of the New York Times, is the chief Washington correspondent of the New York Times, wrote in a story last week, quote, Welcome to the new reality of Supreme Court confirmation hearings, pandemonium, protesters, and razor-sharp partisanship. This isn't new, of course. That's not like Sonny Sotomayor's hearings went by smoothly at the time, but it, this, this feels like a, a different level. That's true. And I, I do think that a lot of it has to do with the 24-7 aspect of, of social media and, and coverage. Even in modern U.S. Supreme Court history, we have a couple of examples of very contentious sets of hearings, uh, some of which actually led to the nominee being withdrawn before even really getting to the hearing table. And I'm thinking back to, I think in the 80s, most people have at least heard reference to the idea of being Borked and Robert Bork. And Robert Bork was nominated by Reagan. That was such a contentious hearing about issues such as the judicial philosophy of Robert Bork and the balance on the court. And so that actually resulted in a vote. But now that we've been through the Clarence Thomas hearings and his close confirmation and a couple of contentious battles since then, I don't think it's new today. I think what's new with these hearings is really the way it's being rushed through in an attempt to avoid a defeat. Yeah, what is the danger of an accelerated hearing process like that? When one party doesn't have the votes to stop this anyway, what is the holdup? I think it is, and I may be saying this just on you know the heels of the Rob Woodward book, saying that we should all be paying attention. But I think, you know, given that this is a lifetime seat on one of the three branches of government, and the Supreme Court is supposed to be the independent branch overseeing the interpretation of the Constitution, I think this is as serious as if voters were told that the election was going to be held one month in advance. I think accelerating the hearings here when there is no requirement to get that seat filled by the time the Supreme Court sits the first Monday in October is uh, it's extremely destructive. There's so much information that has not been released about this nominee, and it may very well be that once it's released, the vote would still be the same, but the lack of process is shocking. In particular, are there things that you are still waiting to hear about from him that you haven't seen in this hearing process? Yes. So so I, I understand why the public might think it's very tedious to have him asked about by senator after senator, sort of set up questions about particular opinions. But the kinds of things that Brett Kavanaugh has not answered have been very interesting. He says, for example, that he respects precedent and precedent on precedent and what he calls nominee precedent. And so he doesn't want to answer questions about so-called recent cases. He's willing, though, going back to the 50s, to say certain things about Brown versus Board of Education and Plessy versus Ferguson. But then Senator Harris went back and asked him about some some very key cases, the Chinese exclusion cases that are quite old, but certainly have a lot to do uh, with how he might rule today in interpreting the Constitution about exclusion of non-citizens from the country. And he... I think very selectively decides not to answer certain questions. It's not a very consistent refusal on his part. Doctor, you mentioned at the the top of the the show that what choice do we have? Is there any sense that 
this could change, that the, the tone and tenor of these confirmation hearings could change, or that we might get to a place where we do find more useful knowledge or get more useful answers from these Supreme Court nominees, or are we effectively just stuck with, with what we've got? Well, I hope we're not stuck with what we've got, no matter who's in power. And I think that one lesson from this year with the enormous political mobilization and the rise of candidates who say, I want you to elect me to office so that I can do things differently. I hope that will eventually find its way into the decision-making of the Senate about how they conduct hearings. Now, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the Senate has to have hearings, actually. The document just says the Senate shall advise and consent. So it's really up to the Senate internally to make up its own rules. But the more transparency that there is and the more demand by the public for transparency and process and information, I would hope the more likely it is that we could get people into office who would take that seriously and not just consider the hearings to be some kind of obligatory showboating before their constituents. So is there anything about this process that you think has been good? Yes. And I think the involvement of the public has been good, especially around the issue of Roe versus Wade and LGBT rights. I think there is finally a realization that appointing someone to the court for life when the potential majority of the court might be out of line or looks to be out of line with what the majority of the public thinks are rights, are constitutional rights, that's awakened a lot of people. And so I looked at the people who testified for and against Judge Kavanaugh with great interest. I think people have been awakened in realizing what's at stake one way or the other, and that's I've never seen that to such a great degree. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Russell always brings us back down to earth on these things. (laughs) (laughs) Someone who's a very close observer and keen observer of all this, you know, it it certainly seems like Brett Kavanaugh is going to be confirmed, but that this debate about how we confirm Supreme Court justices likely not to go away anytime soon. Some of both parties' big political thinkers here calling the shots on how these confirmation hearings go. So before we get to our next segment, we wanted to tell you about something pretty cool going on in one of our McClatchy newsrooms. Sportsbeat KC is the Kansas City Star's five-day-a-week sports podcast, bringing you episodes on the Chiefs, Royals, Sporting KC, and college football and basketball every afternoon, Monday through Friday, in time for your commute. Search for Sportsbeat KC on SoundCloud to listen or subscribe through your favorite podcasting app. Now back to the show. Okay, so Andrea, our next guest is leading a very politically controversial lawsuit right now. Why don't you tell us what that is? So our next guest, Rob Haneke from the Texas Public Policy Foundation, is a plaintiff on a lawsuit with Texas and 19 other states right now that is causing many, many headaches for Republicans in Washington who want absolutely nothing to do with it headed into the 2018 midterms. This lawsuit seeks to unravel all of the rest of Obamacare, but it does so by taking aim at the pre-existing conditions coverages, which are the most popular part. Both parties agree that uh, Mitch McConnell will say that no one in the Senate wants to get rid of that element of it. Uh, it's already popping up in some Democratic ads. You know, legally speaking, the case is uncertain, of course, but it's something that, as you mentioned, Democrats are already very, very eager to jump on, especially in red states, because this is the part of the health care law that is the most broadly popular. 
and Republicans in Washington have never heard of this lawsuit now. <laughs> so, Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you. We want to talk about this Obamacare lawsuit in Texas, uh, along with 19 other states today. It's one of the issues that Republicans in Washington don't want to talk about at all right now. I've actually ran away from some questions about this from the Star-Telegram earlier this week. Democrats, it's now popping up in um, a Senate ad for Joe Manchin this week. Now the threat is Patrick Morrissey's lawsuit to take away health care from people with pre-existing conditions. They call this their their top issue headed into the midterms. What's going on in this lawsuit? And, and give me the, the Texas side of this. So what's going on in the lawsuit is that you mentioned the uh, Texas Attorney General has led a 20-state coalition in suing to challenge the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. I'm the litigation director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I represent two individuals who are continuing to be uh, subject to the Affordable Care Act and injured as a result of its regulatory scheme. We joined the lawsuit, and together with the Texas-led coalition, we had a hearing last week seeking a preliminary injunction to have the court come in and basically stop the Affordable Care Act uh, for being unconstitutional. And talk about the politics of this. Republicans in Washington want nothing to do with it. You're pursuing this anyway. Well, we've noticed. And, you know, first of all, I would say that let's focus on this being a legal issue that uh, the the basic argument is with the recent uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act where Congress zeroed out the individual mandate, the effect of that was to make the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional because the basis with which the Supreme Court in the original NFIB Sebelius case upheld the law was when it found that the individual mandate penalty could be construed as a tax because it generated revenue for the federal government. And now that it no longer does so, uh, the basis which with the Supreme Court saved the, the Affordable Care Act doesn't apply. So first, let's talk about the law and the role of the courts, because the question before the judge is whether the Affordable Care Act is constitutional, not whether it's good policy, not whether it's good politics, not whether you know other solutions should be adopted. And so that's the question that's teed up there. Does that surprise you that they're, they don't want anything to do with it right now? For sure. it's It's been a partisan football since it was very first adopted. And uh, instead of actually addressing the policies and reforms that need to be done, the parties in D.C. just seem to be more focused on trying to kick this back and forth for electoral purposes. Uh, what about some of the other folks who are on this lawsuit right now who were not in Fort Worth with you arguing this case last week? Are Republicans who are named on this lawsuit, some of them are now candidates for Senate in their state, um, and Ken Paxton has a Democratic challenger in Texas. Are they seeking some distance? from this lawsuit themselves? I don't believe so. And, and to be fair, I, I think that the criticism that's been leveled, that, that pointed out that the you know attorneys generals for these several states were not personally in court last week is misplaced. I mean, none of them were. Uh, they're the, the heads of their agencies and the, the head lawyers for their respective states, you know, with many cases and, and a, a large agency to run. So w- regardless of when this case would have occurred at the trial court, I would have not expected any of the attorney generals for what, you know, 32 states that I think are represented in this lawsuit. Let me, let me be blunt with this question. Do other Republicans give you crap? 
about this lawsuit? Do they say that the, the politics of this are bad? What are you doing? You're going to mess up these midterm elections for us? You know, I've not I've not heard that criticism directly. I've seen, in fact, among the, the grassroots. So let's try to expand what we're talking about. We're talking about Republicans and conservatives, certainly among the, the conservative organizations that I just kind of have in my personal network and uh, people that I've spoken with and, and the grassroots, they're very excited that Texas has stepped up, that the Texas Public Policy Foundation has stepped up, and that we are charging to defend the Constitution, the rule of law, and to deliver on this promise that's been out there for, for eight or so years. But I think that the pessimism that's out there has been, you know, involving this lawsuit has been the same kind of pessimism that has uh, thwarted any efforts at really reforming or repealing the Affordable Care Act. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different viewpoints, but that's how I would separate out the, you know, critics from those that are that are really excited at the, the opportunity that we have. You know, well, let me ask you this, and I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, um, and and let, let's say you're successful. You're talking about potentially millions of people who then don't have health care coverage. More broadly than that, but Democrats, will certain politically speaking, will focus on people with pre-existing conditions who now no longer have coverage. How would that not be a political mess for the GOP? I don't think it'll be a political mess for the GOP because I think it will be an opportunity to show that conservative policies, limited government, and free market solutions actually provide Uh, the solutions and the best path forward. Really, I think the best way to counter the the hypotheticals and the criticisms is to show it works. So I think we need to get away from the myth of Washington, D.C. that just because I put out a press release or just because there's words on paper that says something doesn't mean that's actually true. And while the left wants to continue to focus on this pre-existing condition mandate, you know, and, and to make this this charge against the right for wanting to take away people's you know, health insurance, the reality is that's already being done just by the inertia of the Affordable Care Act crumbling and nothing being done will continue to make that worse. Awesome. I think you've answered all of our questions. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, Andrea, I feel like Rob makes a pretty interesting point about finishing what Washington couldn't. And that's a compelling argument to a lot of Republicans. And and he might even have some merit when he says that part of the, the enthusiasm problem that the GOP has, something we've talked about on the show a lot ahead of the midterm elections, is because they haven't been able to follow through on some of these promises. But boy, at the same time, I, I just, you know what I kept thinking when we were interviewing him? I was kept thinking of Josh Holmes, who was a guest on the show a couple months ago. Of course, one of Mitch McConnell's top political lieutenants. Just shake, He would just be shaking his head the whole time. Like, you couldn't design a better lawsuit for Democrats, politically speaking, <laughs> than, than what they've come up with right now. Well, and, and perhaps the political situation is a little different in Texas than it is for folks elsewhere. This is a, a lawsuit that involves 19 other states as well. Some of those states now have candidates on the ballot in statewide races, but it is an approach that works better for somebody who wants to win a primary in Texas than somebody who is running statewide in, say, Wisconsin. So it's that time in the show. It's the lightning round where Andrea and I are going to tell you, the listener, something, hopefully, you don't know, something interesting going on in politics. And just as a reminder... I've got my stopwatch ready. (laughs) And I have my stopwatch ready for you, Andrea. You're up first. You get 30 seconds. 
go. All right, I'm using mine on an ad that's up in West Virginia for Democrat Joe Manchin that he, in which he shoots the Obamacare lawsuit that we Literally. just talked about because Literally. his opponent, Patrick Morrissey, is named on the lawsuit. A Republican told me yesterday they think this is early contender for ad of the year. It's a, a, a reboot of an ad he ran a couple years ago when he shot a... Uh, environmental law? It was the cap and trade legislation, actually, which was then being debated in 2010. Big shock. That wasn't real popular in coal-heavy West Virginia. Did we make it? You actually did great right there. I And I even bogarted some of your time at the end, and you still made it in under 30 seconds. Very impressive. It's probably as long as that ad is. You can go check it out online. <laughs> it is exactly 30 seconds. Okay, Andrew, are you ready to time me? Go for it. Okay, well, I just want to make an observation here on the anniversary of 9-11 that if you look at the midterm election landscape, there's just no discussion of foreign policy whatsoever. It doesn't appear in any ad in, in any context and really isn't even part of the discussion here in Washington, with the exception of some of Trump's the negotiations, such as they are with North Korea. It's just a, a show just how much our politics has changed uh, since that fateful day. We also heard about Obamacare for eight to 10 years from Republicans. It's not necessarily what is the most pressing issue of the moment. It's what's moving voters at the moment. Not the bet that either side is taking. Absolutely. Andrea Drush, thank you as always for doing the show with me. Just two more months before the election. This will be fun. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk, Talk to, to you, you next week. week.